Hey there, English 3322 folks. Como va? Como están? How are you guys doing? This is Professor Daniel Pena. Uh, today's the last day of Marcelo Hernandez Castillo's Children of the Land. Uh, today is also the last day of class. Kind of snuck up on us there, didn't it? But I'm really heartened with the work we've done this semester. Um, I've been really uh, pleasantly surprised and enthused by the essays I've read, uh, especially in this kind of um, really squiggly time at, at, during which we're recording these things and, and having this class. Uh, and so it's been a real pleasure to read your work throughout the semester. My biggest regret is that I haven't been able to meet you guys in person. Um, and I, I think, you know, some of you, I've, I've talked to you guys over the phone or we've had office hours or Zoom meetings or something like that. Um, but there's so much talent in this class and there's so much, um, just good energy and, and, uh, you know, for me, like, I think this is one of those classes, like a lot of literature based classes or even creative writing based classes that you really get out of it, what you put into it. Um, to that end, it's sort of like, if I could leave you with any last wisdom of your college career, um, it's that that's the case with most things in life, but especially, especially with humanities and, and with art. I think about this a lot, like, who is art for, right? Um, what is art's purpose? Why do we Why do we need it? And, you know, for me, I, I can only speak for my subjectivity as a novelist. I think of art as something that not only, it doesn't conceal, right? I think I would, if you would ask me what the purpose of story was, I would say it would be to, to conceal or there's some sort of lie, like, you know, stories. Um, but the older I get, the, the more I realize that story really reveals um, some fundamental truth about what it means to be human. Uh, you really see that on display with Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, um, in which he's really, you know, lobbing up these questions and then asking these kind of big, uh, sweeping, um, he's, he's really diving into the weeds with his stuff, right? And, 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 and into those questions and trying to answer them. And you realize that the answers are not really clear. That life is messy. Life is blurry. And I think that's the case with a lot of, um, you know, art really ex explores the nuances of, of what it means to be alive, what it means to be human. Um, to this end, like, why does art matter, right? Um, I have a twofold question or twofold answer for that, rather, where you think of like Kandinsky, you think of, uh, you know, Frida Kahlo, you think of Mozart, Bach, um, Caravaggio, uh, looking at Dickens, you know, going back and, you know, Juan Rulfo and all these old guys who've produced all this stuff, these things that are sort of great art, right? Um, and the thing is, they're all dead, right? But you're still alive, right? Think of that. Like they're, you inhabit, you, you're in the inheritors of this great, you know, wealth of creation that, that humanity has created. Uh, and I think it's, it tells us something about, right, if, if art is grounded in this idea of what it means to be human, there, there's not to say that, that it has a sort of like therapeutic uh, nature, like there's not some sort of like, but it does, it is a kind of roadmap to what it means to be human, right? Um, and it explores the traumas as well as the joys, as well as the, you know, the comedies of Shakespeare I'm thinking of, or, uh, you know, the sort of revenge tragedies, these big tropes of life. And I think so much, so many people go throughout life looking for answers, and they turn to a lot of different means, uh, not to say anyone is right or wrong, but uh, one source of answers that I've come to and I, I found over and over again, and it really changes the way in which I look at the world is 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 um, is art, right? Um, literature in my case, but like all of art. Um, right now, I'm on like a photography kick, 
And uh, perhaps because of that and, and sort of the moment in which I'm approaching Marcelo Hernandez Castillo's book, um, in the midst of this COVID crisis and in the midst of uh, this sort of, it's, I mean, the, the way in which he's laying out the text is almost in this like vignette style. Uh, and so they're like almost like little snapshots. Um, but I guess this is the first time I've really occurred, it's occurred to me that the way in which story is being laid out, it's almost like, uh, almost like photographic. And, and I mean that in the way in that whenever someone takes a picture, it, they are conveying to you how you should see something or it's a way in which they can instantly connect for their mind to yours and saying, this is how I saw it. And you see it too. And you see it exactly how they framed it or exactly how they composed it. And in that way, art is a medium through which we can view or experience, you know, the direct correspondence to, to how someone else experienced or saw something like, think of that. That is kind of a, a really interesting thing, right? Um, it's a, it's a way, it's, it's something that no other animal on earth does, you know, conveys exactly how I felt or how, how I'm perceiving this to how you might feel or how you could perceive this. And in that way, we sort of expand our, our knowledge of the world, right? We expand our, we, we look outside of ourselves. And for me, that's like, I don't know, not to get all old man, last day of class thing, but if I can leave you with just a couple nuggets of wisdom outside of art, um, it's, I think, the best thing you can do moving forward is to be more interested in other people than you are in yourselves. Um, it's really counterintuitive because I think a lot of people go through lives and there's there's like multi-billion dollar industries based on like, you know, business coaching or self-help or not to say anything that's wrong, right? But looking, generally looking outside of yourself and being more interested in others than you are in yourself, um, that's generally how you connect with other people, right? They want to share with you the things that excite them. And then you get to the point where you're having this conversation about the deeper meanings of who they are and, and then how you can connect with them. And they reciprocate too. And they, and, you know, and, and what's, what ends up happening is, you know, you don't like the Stephen Fry, the great, you know, uh, writer, actor, uh, it said, you know, you could be standing next to someone in line who's doing a show that night at a coffee shop. And then, you know, that's how people become managers of the bands or that's how become, uh, you know, people become like, uh, you know, part of a music scene or part of a writing scene or whatever else, you know, always looking out. Um, and then people like you and then they want to share opportunities with you. And that's always been for me as a writer, that's always been my, one of the great, in my, one of my favorite things about, um, being alive as a creator is, um, really being conscious of, of, of what other people are doing and really being conscious of the way in which, I don't know, I might comment or, or contribute to that conversation or, or maybe I'm just interested in how they became that successful or, um, or even if they're, uh, you know, quote unquote, like less successful or maybe just beginning out in their career, you know, like, what are they doing? How might I be able to help them? And, for me, that's one of the great pleasures of, of being alive. And I think it's directly linked to art. The second thing I would say is just showing up on time. That is like most of the good things in my life have come from like showing up on time, uh, showing up early even. It's you and some other guy at a reading. And uh, he's like, hey, man, so what are you here for this reading? Yeah, you know, well, I met her back. And you know, oh, that's cool. That's cool. So what do you do? I'm working for this magazine. Oh, cool. Actually, I'm looking for someone to review this thing, right? Would you want to do it? I'm like, whoa, yeah. You know, like stuff like that happens all the time. Um, you'd be amazed 
the kind of connections and the kind of opportunities that show up to you when you show up earlier, you show up on time, uh, but then also signals to someone else too that you value their time and you value their, um, you know, you're not going to show up late, right? That shows that that's for class too. That's part of the parcel of sort of like you get out of it what you put into it. You know, I think one of the big things of one of the big myths of my college career, and I don't know if this myth still exists, is like I'm going to go through the motions, I'm going to get a degree, and then I'm going to get a job. Um, that hasn't been true since like 2007, right? <laughs> In which you could, there was a time where you could do that. You can get a degree and then you just get a job and then you're okay. Um, but you graduate now, I mean, 2008, the recession, that's when my generation really hit the, you know, we graduated and there were just no jobs. Very similar actually to kind of this situation now in which the economy was in a really fragile place and we had to really learn, um, how to be crafty in order to survive. But I think about you guys, especially going out, um, and and it wasn't like, what is your credential? It was like, what can you do? So for me, it wasn't enough that I could write. It was like, I can write, and I can interview, and I know how to maybe do a podcast, and I know how to do web stuff. Um, I also knew how to fly planes at that time. And then I also, you just you create this thing, and you create your own niche, and then suddenly you become... You know, they're looking for like, a, you know, someone who can do nine or 10 or 12 different things. And then you can sort of think, but that's all to say that, you know, as you finish out your college careers, um, these, you know, some of the weirdest classes that I thought of as throwaway classes that I really tried to get a lot of juice out of it, they became my calling card later, right? My minor was linguistics and that set me up with a job teaching, um, English as a second language, um, at Louisiana state university, which is how I basically stayed in higher ed when there were no jobs at that time. Uh, and then those things, you know, really unexpected things, photography became weirdly important. I just, I remember on a lark, I just, um, got interested in photography. I didn't really even take a class or anything. I just got really immersed in it. And then, uh, you know, when I, whenever I would do an article for NBC news or, the Guardian or something, they would say, hey, do you have any photographs you could sell to us as well? And I did, right? I had taken pictures from my own records of the things that I was writing about just so I could get the texture right. What was that, what outfit was that guy wearing? Or what was, um, what did the sky look like that day? Um, what, you know, what exactly did the road look like? What were the conditions? Was it craggy road or was it like a brand new road? Things like that. And then you sell those things to the, to the outlets and then, you know, easy 500 bucks right there. And you'd be amazed how just... I don't know, those weird throwaway things. This is all to say, as you round out your college career, as you go on into uh, graduation and your senior year, be conscious of the ways in which, you know, you get get the things out of out of UHD that you can. And then, you know, make sure that you, you get out of it what you put in. I think that's the one thing I really want to convey to you guys um, right now in this moment. But anyways, let's, let's get into the text itself. I think we have stuff to talk about today. Um, I'm going to start a little ahead at fourth movement as a treatise on love. And then we're going to get into this sort of um, the heaviness. And I think the book ends on a kind of heavy note. And I want to pause there for a moment and talk a little bit about blindness and invisibility. Because I think it's something we, we, we touched on last time. Um, but it really becomes poignant here in the end of this book. So let's go ahead and turn to page 246, uh, Fourth Movement as a Treatise on Love. I'm just going to go ahead and, and read it. It's a very short chapter, um, about five sections. I was always falling in love, even as a child. 
As a pie tossed a ma against the wall, I wrote letters to my fourth grade crushes at Park Avenue Elementary. As she crouched on the floor, I listened to songs of longing, songs that said I still had yet to understand. Amanda Miguel cooed into my ear from the radio, Mi buen corazón, tú eres mi perdición, me arrastres, siempre el al dolor, me matas en cada amor, ah, ah, ah. I drew hearts in the outlines of people on good white paper. As Ama flinched, I passed notes in class and waited nervously for a response. I said, I love you. I love you so much, I said. Check the box, yes or no, and drew boxes. As Ama smiled at me, I smiled back. We were both trying to figure out why love wanted nothing to do with us. I never told my mother that I loved her, never said that those actual words or never said those actual words, rather. Instead, I hold her hand as she sang to me and played with my hair. What did I know of love? Your father cares about us. It's just his temper, she would say, moving her fingers through my hair. My father learned about love from his father, who learned it from his father's father. He learned that love was not something that you did, but something that you made sure someone remembered, for better or worse. In Spanish, you don't usually say, te amo, I love you, to your mother, because amo has other connotations of desire. Instead, you say, te quiero mucho, I like you a lot. It's more common for a mother to say, te amo, to a son or daughter. It's not reciprocal. Sometimes, even just saying the word amor when speaking to someone gets the point across. Amor, come with me to the store. Amor, it's nothing. Amor, tell your father the food is ready. Ama knew all about the paper hearts in my room, but she didn't care. Oh, Amor, the trouble was that so did Apa, and he did. La Tragedia de Rosita was a song that men outside my house would drink to late into the night, a song I had heard my entire life at weddings and Christmas parties and babies' christenings. It said, A man loved a woman so much he killed her. Tragedy and beautiful women make good company. Rosita, love of my life, how I have waited for this day to tell you that I love you. The rancher mocked Rosita and threw her in the corn grinder, and the river swept her away. The reason I chose this passage um, for today was because I think it sheds light on a few things that are going on here um, that are thematically important with this book. Remember at this time that Ama has gone back to Tepechitlan to um, live with Apa, um, but Apa has not been treating her well. Um, and so, you know, this, this is causes um, uh, Marcelo to come back to Tepechitlan to sort of check up on his mother. And his father's sort of continued doing all these renovations. And um, he comes under the guise of like, I'm going to check up on and sort of help my dad out with these renovations. But he's really, I think, looking after his mom. Um, and there is a little bit of concern or a little bit more than concern in how his, his mom is being treated. Um, I think this is why he unpacks this moment in which he links his own sort of insatiable desire for love to his mother's and there's that entire section on te quiero versus te amo, right? It's, it's appropriate for the, a mother to say te amo, but not for the son to say um, te amo back. There's like a, an element of desire there that um, isn't appropriate. But it's interesting because it what it infers is that a mother's love for her son is just, he has no context for it. Um, and so as much as he's trying to 
you know, have this sort of like do the right thing as the son, I think there is ultimately the severity of like not having the knowledge of not like not knowing if he's able to fully reciprocate or fully um, do justice to the love that he's been given. I think thematically this ties in with this blindness that becomes a recurring trope throughout the book. Um, it also um, sheds light on this sort of um, another kind of the way in which blindness is linked to invisibility, which is like this insatiability for love, right? Um, just these writing of these love letters to be like, I want to be seen. Do you love me? Yes or no. Do you love me? Yes or no. Which is a very, um, so it's kind of a very, uh, at once a cloying, but also a very kind of like a sad scene um, that that need for, you know, desire or, pe or feeling invisible or feeling like, you know, love is a complicated and it's a very, um, doesn't quite know exactly, you know, I think he, I think he knows what it means, but he's constantly feels like he's being deprived of it. Um, and it becomes like this, this, um, this engine of, of, of desire within the story itself. So with that idea of like invisibility and blindness and love now entering the picture, those things being sort of like a, a braided thread within the story, I can't help but think of this moment on page 265, fourth movement as a swimming lesson. Um, in which we really get uh, a keyhole into sort of his father's love, which is, you know, there's that great line. He's like, my father learned, I learned love from my father who learned from his father who learned from his father's father. And there's this sort of, um, and he explores this in the, in the passage from last time too, this dread of having to repeat the mistakes of, or having to becoming the same person. At the end of the book, he says, you know, it is no mistake that I am my father's name, right? I am Marcelo, like my father's Marcelo. Um, and with that in mind, I'll just, dive right into the text. My father taught me and my brothers to swim by throwing us into the river. Use your hands, use your feet, he would scream at the edge of the water, his thick legs bulging out of his jean shorts. I wondered if I would ever have legs as thick and hairy as his. My brothers and I thrashed in the water like three angry roosters, roosters that were bred only to fight, who could kill each other with nothing but their bodies aimed toward the exact outline of their death. I flailed in the water, trying to come up for air. I could see him a few feet away. I knew I wouldn't drown. I knew he wouldn't let me. But he said if I was to learn, I had to come close. For me, this says like everything you need to know about the father figure and, and the way in which masculinity works in this in this uh, family, really. it's um, There's a kind of fatalism there, right? Masculinity is linked to fatalism, is linked to like, you know really rugged individualism pulling yourselves up and and so much of marcelo and i think I, so part of this book we haven't really talked about yet is his sort of radical vulnerability right i think he's exploring a lot of mental health issues um you know there are tropes of bipolarism in this uh tropes of uh body dysmorphia there's that scene those scenes at the end of the book where he's um in that chain of hotels that is you can find on both sides of the borders in, in Juarez and um and this other one the other Isidro I think it is um and he's, he's sort of looking at the mirror and he's saying I'm too bony I'm too fat I'm too skinny I'm too this and there's always this sort of level of critique and you get the vibe too and I, I've thought about this in 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 the book um 
it's this quote by Gandhi where, where Gandhi, you know, says, you know, anger, anger is the punishment that we give to ourselves for other people's mistakes. And I think about this a lot with Marcelo constantly absorbing, um, that anger that's sort of given to him by his father, that was given to him by his father. And there's this sort of chain of, of, of things, but, you know, we see so much in this book, Marcelo getting angry at himself for the way in which his father treated him or the things that his father did. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in that, um, as not just a trope of a manifestation of this, of this character, of this, of this, um, this memoir, right? But also just sort of writ large within, in the, uh, in the, the sort of larger Mexam canon, Mexican-American literary canon, um, the ways in which we replicate the masculinity or the toxic, toxic masculinities that have been sort of conveyed to us or sort of passed down to us. Um, but there's also something kind of else that I, that I think of, which is that I think because the father subscribes to these kind of old school notions of masculinity and um, the man's place in the world, um, silos himself off from the people who love him or the people who um, he might love. And maybe it comes from a place that he doesn't know how to reciprocate exactly. He doesn't know what love is. And so, you know, that you can see that sort of blindness uh, to love um, making him invisible, not only to Marcelo or maybe his family, uh, both literally and metaphorically. He's completely gone. He's in Tepechitlan. But he's also sort of closed off to what that means for himself as well. Right. Um, if you have no community, right. If you have no, uh, if you don't have context, if you don't know how to love yourself, how is it that you're going to, you know, exist in a community of people who 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 value you, right, or who, who can have access to value you? It's it's a very complicated thing, um, and it's something that I think as we get to the end of the text, the ways in which I mean, looking taking a step back. So much of these systems that that complicate this narrative, right? Um, Department of Homeland Security, ICE, um, you know, th these 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 things that or these you know the U.S. immigration system, the way in which they continually strip dignity, reinforces this idea that like, if we already have a complicated relationship to love and loving ourselves, what do we say in the context of a country that says we're worthless? And again, going back to that section where. Marcelo was saying, I don't know on the American side or the Mexican side, which side do I actually, you know, exist, you know, which I, you know, it seems that both sides don't want me. Um, you know, we get to this, we get to this final scene in the book in which he's, we'll talk about the bleach in just a second and, and, and that, that whole thing. But, you know, love, self-love, you know, visibility or invisibility, blindness, these things are all becoming really sort of like tied together the closer we get to the end of the book. Um, and especially with that concept of the Napantla, right, bringing in that thirdness or moving into a thirdness, um, we get that at the end of the book. It's a very kind of satisfying ending um, in which, you know, after having gone through this entire harrowing thing where he's trying to get his mother back to the American side of the border, back into the States, back home, essentially, um, and she's essentially detained for so many days and then released only with like an ankle monitor. Um, 
you know, Marcel, there's this incredible frustration. And the, I mean, I, for me, the zenith of this book is this epiphany, or the epiphany really is just, you will not tell me whether I have dignity or not. I'm going to assert my own dignity, right? Um, interpersonally, institutionally, um, personally, right? Like in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think moving toward the end of this book, I think it's this, especially we have like, Going back to this idea of mental health and these, um, uh, you know, these things, these sort of full acknowledgement of the of the pathologies that are sort of ailing him, I feel like this is the first step toward really um, moving into this sort of like third space or moving in, sort of reclaiming or breaking the cycle of, you know, my father, my father's father, my father's father's father, you know, there was so much being put on Marcelo, even when he's talking about walking in the Pechitlan and carrying that little piece of aloe and the bugs are biting him and he's using it to dab himself. And um, his answer saying, oh, it doesn't, essentially he's calling him weak. Like, you know, oh, you're so delicate for this. You're so weak. There's this kind of like, always from every side, something is kind of tearing him down. And uh, this is a moment sort of at the end when he's sort of, he has this bucket of bleach and he's sort of like dissolving all of his documents in it and then creating these paper mache horses. I think there's like four horses. Um, that, that he can sort of be like, well, fuck it, man. I'm just like, you know, uh, I'm just going to do me and I'm going to sort of self heal. And, and it's a moment you get the vibe in which he takes at least a step toward loving himself. Um, I think it's a kind of a, a kind ending. Um, and of course this new life that he's built, um, and all the trials and tribulations that go along with it, you know, he's saying, you know, this is my story and this is who I am. And, you know, fuck it, man. I love myself, you know, or I try. I'm going to take, I'm going to try. <laughs> that's the, that's the, uh, end of the book, essentially. Let's go to that section. Actually, it's on page 351 and we'll just go ahead and read it. For years, I kept dozens of copies of my quote documents. I couldn't throw them away. I couldn't burn them. Among them was one with my name and a number whose individual digits added up to 44. The combinations that could add up to 44 seemed infinite, and I was one among that endless, endlessness, rather. It was like choosing numbers for the lottery. My mother's birthday, my street address, the day my grandfather died. I dissolved the copies. I dipped them into a bucket filled with bleach, glue, and water. I turned them into a pulp, the image of my face broken apart, spilling its ink into the rest of the sludge. But there, here and there, I could still see an eye, my hair, my chin, how stubborn I was. I ran my fingers through the pulp and squeezed it between webs, between my webs. I wanted all of it to go away, to meld together like a ball of mating snakes, one unrecognizable from the other. The water was a cloudy blue, like the sky in a Midwestern spring, pockets of blue behind an overwhelming gloom, the blurriness of spoiled milk, or of my paternal grandfather's eyes the last time I saw him before his death. I wanted it to become something more than the sum of its parts, a rearrangement of the details of my life into a better outcome. Everything that went into the bucket was still there. Nothing had gone away. The paper, the cotton in the paper, the dye in the ink, the glue and the chemicals that gave the paper its clinical whiteness. In the vat, the pulp would never return to what it was before. It was irreversible. There was a time I wanted to exist as a series of ciphers, to live in that impossibility of ever being put back together, by which I mean I wanted to not have a past. For me, this is like that, this is like a crucial sort of like, a, 
in a, in a, in a poem, we would, we would call it a volta, right? In which the poem inverts in and on itself. Um, but this final desire, right? We talk about this book being sort of a, a series of questions that are lopped up and then sort of parsed through. And the, in a lot of ways, this is like one of the final ones. Um, can you extract yourself or extra, you know, from your family or from your past? Uh, there are reasons that ICE would want to do that. And I think one of the tragedies... Um, or maybe maybe this is one of the revolutionary things is saying, you know, I am not the country or people or son of from where I come from, right? And there's a kind of tragedy there, um, but also maybe a kind of an opportunity for reinvention. It's it's not, there's no black or white here. It's really complicated. Uh, this is not neither good or bad. It was a baptism of all my former selves, all trying to be redeemed. I had done wrong. I promised to do good. I dipped their heads in the water, rubbed their foreheads clean, and they all closed their eyes to receive something holy. The smell of bleach wiping everything away. They did what good Christian sinners do, disappear. Again, that sort of like invisibility. I slushed the mixture with my hands, making soft balls of pulp in my hands. They could have been molded into anything I wanted them to be. Fire would not do this. If I burned them, I probably would have kept the ashes and eaten them, or smeared them across my teeth and smiled at passing traffic. No one would know what I was smiling at, and they would all smile back. I poured all of my names into bleach because I wanted them cleaned, sanitized, redeemed, rid of all their failures. And I thought long about the purpose of bleach, to whiten that which was not white, and my shame and disgust at how many times I thought of bleaching my own skin. All summer long, working construction to buy clothes for the school year. I wore long sleeve shirts, large hats, bandanas around my face, and gloves. I wanted no part of my body to touch the sun, all to prevent myself from becoming any darker than I already was. I was young. I didn't know how to love my skin, because everyone around me said that um, to be beautiful meant to be what I was not. I began molding the mixture into a four-legged thing. It could have been a horse, or a dog, or a cow. I wanted to make a horse, but it wouldn't stick together. The poet Richard Seekin said that horses can run until they forget they are horses. Running because that's the only thing that they can do without having to tell their bodies how to do it. I wondered what I didn't need to tell my body how to do. When you are baptized, do you need to tell your body how to exercise, excise its sin, or does it just happen without you? Can you just toss your head back and let water, gravity, and the divine do the rest? In that bucket, I was creating a paper trail of my disappearances, of all the people that I was not. Maybe I could talk to them. I'm going to pause here because I think it it really unpacks this idea of invisibility as a kind of violence. You know, of course, there's a sort of self-inflicted... Um, Although I'm even loath to call it self-inflicted because it's it's a message that's being sent from society. He's talking about the color of his skin. Um, he's talking about too fat, too skinny, too whatever. Um, and there's a kind of real violence that is being imposed on the psyche of, of, of that person who society is trying to change to become homogenous in this one way. And they desire that. They sort of into oblivion. But... This line really haunts me. In that bucket, I was creating a paper trail of my disappearances, of all the people that I was not. Um, maybe I could talk to them, right? Of all the people that I was not. Um, 
that can be read in a couple different ways. I think of it as a, sort of like a, an intentional disappearance or a disavowal of the person who he was before, that person who was stripped of dignity, who bended toward the system. But also the fictions in which, you know, there's that interview that they have to do in front of the, um, like the person who decides whether you get a visa or not. Um, and there is a kind of dissonance between like, you know, what you say to this person and the, the, the story that you have to, you know, the quote unquote perfect story to get the visa, right? There's distance between who the actual is and who the person on paper is. Um, and I wonder in some sense whether there's a sense of, of shame or, um, you know, disavowal of that, you know, if only to sort of, uh, it seems that if you want to go into the beyond, if you want to go into the Nepantla, that you have to sort of like banish that person. But it's not exactly an exercise of, like there's, there's a cost to trying to reclaim your own dignity. Um, it just doesn't come for free. There, there has to be a disavowal. Um, maybe I could talk to them, right? <laughs> like, like maybe that, that link to the past remains open in some way. Um, for me, that's a really haunting line here. But again, this imagery of like the milky, the sort of the gray scale of, you know, there's that moment where he says he's going blind in, in Tijuana and he's sort of only seen the vague outline of his mother. He imagined this bucket of bleach with these paper in it and just sort of like creating the slurry of like milky slurry of, you know, documents. And again, going into that blindness again in that disappearance at once, it can be a powerful thing, but then also a, a really terrifying or damning or a kind of violence like we talked about earlier. I made many four-legged things and placed them in the sun to dry, to harden. I named each of them after famous lovers. They were a record of myself that held my secrets. I could trust them never to tell what was written into them. The images and numbers were erased, but nonetheless, they were there, coded. They were small vaults for which no one had the key but me. Untranslatable. Unbreakable. Right. I think there's a a really, and it leads into this final passage I want to talk about today, um, but this question of whether you can ever really fully um, liberate yourself from who you are. You know, in the American schematic, and the promise of America is that you can become whoever you want to be. And I think it's something that we should, you know, keep in mind as well, this idea that like, um, anything is possible in America. Um, and especially that anything might be possible in, uh, if you work hard enough, that kind of thing. But like, how do these, the ways in which these systems strip people from their, uh, from their dignity, the ways in which they demand that you fit into a certain mold or fit into a certain, you know, set of traumas. And we talked last time about like what the white gaze needs with brown trauma. I, I, I think about the ways in which self-actualization, one is only really ever really possible. And if one believes in it, is that a hallmark of one's capitulation to or one's buying into ultimately the American fabric, right? Obviously, Marcelo is 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 part of both, and we and we talk about this in this class, Mexican and American. Um, but ultimately, sort of feeling, you know, sort of colonized within even just sort of like by circumstances of history, by circumstances of geography, of personal uh, movement of history, um, 
this is a subversive act, right? Dissolving his documents in a, in a, in a vat of bleach. But can you ever escape, even if the act says one thing, but you still believe that you can create something different or that you can become something different, are you still really ridding yourself of your Americanness, if that makes any sense? Um, and it complicates this idea of this move toward Napantla. Um, you know, as Jay-Z says, you know, wherever you go in the world, you are who you are, right? <laughs> and I, I think about that in the context of this, but it, it really, I think about, like, I'm just going to read the end here, because I, it's it's sort of thematically tied to here. Um, I'm here on page 356. In the morning, I make myself an espresso in a stovetop metal cup and watch the coffee pour from the little fountain on the top. I open the fridge and eat a pepper. I place the seeds under my tongue. Standing alone in my kitchen, I think of the different ways I've ruined my life. Maybe I was meant to be taken in the field when Ama buried the seed, pregnant with me. Only when I lie underwater do I feel as I did before my mother left for Mexico. Even though she's back, it is different. It is only in that underwater solitude that I can learn to blame someone else for the person I've become since. In that moment, I hope that rising is like a baptism, and that I will be washed clean. I imagine that being loved is like holding my breath underwater. Temporary, something I can't hold for long. When I fell in love with Ruby, she said she loved me too, but then she left. Though I know it will come, the feeling of rising to the surface still startles me. It's in the moment when I'm slowly starting to realize that although I still blame myself for many things that aren't my fault, I am still capable of being loved. She and I eventually get back to, got back together. But I want to experience love the way I experienced drowning, never coming back to the surface, never finding relief, always just a click away from dying, which I admit is selfish because it's easier to be desired than to go on with the work of desiring. I know I can swim toward tenderness, but so many times I refuse. I refuse because I imagine that stillness is part of tenderness, and if I reach that place of tenderness, I won't know what to do with the serenity. I open the hot container of espresso, pour it into a small cup, and raise the cup to my mouth. I burn my tongue, yell, and wake up Ruby, who is sleeping in the next room, now pregnant with our child, who we will name Julian after my ama Julia. My child will know his grandparents by touch, and not through a screen or through my yelling as I push the phone to his ear. I am always looking ten seconds into the future, looking for the nearest door to run through, always needing to move. Ruby is in the hospital maternity ward. Ruby is wheeled away. Ruby is laying unconscious on a surgery bed with the doctor's hands inside her. No one expected a cesarean. They split her open and are taking things out and placing them in bags like shoes on a door rack. It doesn't look like they will be putting them back into her. The doctor reaches in and pulls out a small pink thing, covered in blood, taking his first breath of this world. He is screaming, as if he has seen the future already, and knows the past. They toss him around with towels to clean him, and though milky and gray, his eyes are already open. Right, again, that sort of nod toward invisibility, toward blindness, right? I am just a blurry shape and shadow to him, softening into the empty space around me, an interchangeable thing just as my parents were to me in Tijuana. If I, too, am like the birds packed tightly together on a tree, and if a loud noise startles me, what would be left behind on the branches? The nurse swaddles him tight and places him in my arms while the doctor staples Ruby's abdomen back together. Mijo, mijo, can you hear me, I say, 
and we are both shaking as if we have either just finished or just getting ready to run. Wow. What an ending, right? I mean, it really sort of, you know, that part where he says, um, I reach out, I reach that place of tenderness. I won't know what to do with serenity, right? He's like, I know how to swim toward it, but I don't know if I can always do that. Um, and this moment, which is his son is being born, is is this moment in which he has to really confront that. And suddenly it's like, no, you you have to be tender now. <laughs> you have to swim in that direction. And that scene is, is really, uh, really beautiful in the end. Um, but I think he's, it's, a, it's an interesting meditation on it. You know, it starts with fatherhood and ends with fatherhood. Um, but he, you know, he names him after uh, a woman, not, not a man, not himself, right? It's not like Marcelo III. Um, I think it's kind of a nice touch there, right? Moving into the sort of the feminine realm, moving into that sort of, um, you know, that's the way of the Napantla, going that way um, and embracing uh, what you're born with and then what you can create. Yeah, I really dig this book. Um, you know, immigration and, you you know, the undocumented experience in, in the United States is a really, it's a really complicated thing. Um, frankly, there's not that much literature about the undocumented experience in the United States. Um, but this book is, is easily hands down, um, the most complex, the most nuanced. Um, I like that it links masculinity to this sort of uh, these tropes that um, are sailing on both sides of the border. I like that it sort of links this idea of Napantlera. I think it, I like that it interrogates invisibility and rights and what rights do we actually have in this country and what rights do we um, um, are we allowed to to have as a people, right? Both human rights and uh, American sort of everyday citizen rights, right? Uh, and, it, and, it, and ultimately, I think it's just it's it's just a good book. Um, it's a fascinating story, and you kind of it's amazing to think that this happened to like one individual. Um, but stories like these are just everywhere. It's just that they haven't been articulated, or they don't had happened to people who can articulate them the way Marcelo can. And so, I think the danger of this kind of book is you know, um, or the danger maybe not the book of the but the danger of the way in which the book is studied is that, well, people say well this is writ large for every um, uh, you know, undocumented experience, but of course some undocumented experiences are worse, like so much more traumatic and some undocumented experiences are less traumatic. But what I like is that this is as a middle of the road kind of book. Uh, and I don't mean middle of the road, um, in a pejorative way. I mean, in middle of the road in terms of like, it doesn't feel sensationalist at all. He's saying, these are the facts and this is how it happened. And it could have been worse. And, and here's the ways in which it was. And, and here are the ways in which we were privileged. It's really an exploration of, um, the through lines between all those experiences, which are, you know, these tropes of invisibility, these in tropes of, of these tropes of blindness, the ways in which every undocumented experience is idiosyncratic to that person, right? Even though there are some com commonalities um, by virtue of it being uh, sort of existing within this kind of oppressive system of state-sponsored terrorism, <laughs> which is like, you know, really clamping down on, frankly, innocent people, frankly, in many cases, refugees, Um uh, but it's it's also a book of the moment, and I think it's um, for those reasons I I really gravitated toward it. I think it's hands down one of my favorite books that was published in 2020. Cool. Well, guys, that was class. That was that was Mexican American literature English 3322. You guys did it, and we recorded a lot of podcasts, and you guys listened to them. I think 
and uh, he, he wrote a lot of essays, right? Um, I gotta say, I'm really, I, this is like hands down the class or the single class that, you know, I really got up to and excited to teach, um, every day, you know, um, even if you guys didn't hear from me every day, I was working on the class every day, um, whether that was recording or producing the thing or reading the books or grading your essays or corresponding with you guys. Um, this class was, uh, was, um, you know, my, my, it was by far my, my favorite one that I taught this semester. Um, and my only regret is that I didn't get to see you guys like in person. Uh, I mentioned that at the, at the top of the podcast, but, um, so many of you have had the great opportunity, the great pleasure of speaking with. And, um, I just want to tell you that, um, I hope in the near future that we're able to meet in person. I hope, um, I just hope to see a lot of you guys in one of my other classes, whether that's English 33, 32, which is literary magazine production, or English 3309, English 3343, which are workshops, um, or English 4309, which are, you know, sort of advanced creative writing. I hope to see you guys in one of those courses uh, and meet you in person and have an opportunity to sort of shake your hand and stuff. Um, but I've been really heartened uh, by the work that's happened this semester, and I just want to congratulate you guys. Uh, and moreover than that, I just want to thank you for um, being incredibly kind and rolling with these um, the circumstances of the semester, which have been uh, kind of squiggly, right, with COVID-19 and everything. Um, but thank you. Um, I appreciate you guys. Uh, and I wish you every good thing in my heart. Uh, be well, and I will, uh, I'll see you around the ranch. <laughs>